0: Alright, in part four, our final section of Vents 101, we are now going to talk about troubleshooting. And this section is mainly going to focus on vent alarms. Um, so, vent alarms. Um, I think that most people feel about vent alarms something like this. This was something that somebody sent me from Twitter. Um, this is Dr. Gluckomenflecken's Twitter advice to his fellow ophthalmologists on how to manage ventilator alarms. If the ventilator starts beeping loudly, that means it's mad at you. Quickly apologize to the machine and ask it if there is anything you can do to help the patient breathe better. If still unsure what to do, furrow your brow and stare at the screen until somebody smarter than you asks if you need any help. Then gesture vaguely at the screen and say, what do you think about this? And then agree with whatever the person says. Um, Yeah, I think that's about right. I think that is how many people feel about vent alarms. Um, I will see people walking by a room where the vent is alarming and suddenly hear, oh, is that a trauma overhead? Or no, I think that patient needs to talk to me. Yeah, Um, vent alarms can be very scary, um, often because people just don't know what to do about them. So fortunately, it turns out not all vent alarms are created equal. There are some you care about, but there's some you don't care about so much. They're not that bad. They're not that complicated. So let's start with those and just get them out of the way. So the vent alarms you don't care about so much are if it's alarming because the respiratory rate is too high or because it's too low. Now, if the respiratory rate is too high, that means the patient is over-breathing the vent at a really fast rate. You can't do anything about that on the vent. You can't have the vent scold the patient and tell them to not breathe so fast. It doesn't work like that. That probably means you have a sedation problem and you need to fix it. Propofol usually is the solution for this problem. Okay. What about a low respiratory rate? Well, think about it. The only time that we could have that is if you're in a pressure support mode and you're letting the patient breathe as fast or in this case, as slow as they want. Okay. If that's the case, if the patient has decided that they're going to breathe at five and the vents all alarming, just switch out a pressure support mode and have the vent breathe at whatever rate you set it at. Okay, easy. These are easy to fix. Not that complicated. Then there are the vent alarms that you actually care about. These are your peak pressure alarms and your tidal volume alarms. And unfortunately, not only are these vent alarms, the ones you actually care about, they're also complicated. So let's talk about them, because it turns out that a peak pressure alarm and a tidal volume alarm are in a way two sides of the same coin, and it just depends whether you're in a volume control mode or pressure control mode, which side of the coin you're going to see. So let's say that we're in a volume control mode. So that means that we are going to be blowing up our beach ball, and as we're blowing up our beach ball, we are going to set our tidal volume as our independent variable. And as we blow up our beach ball, we find that giving the beach ball a tidal volume of 400 gives us a pressure of 20. Cool. Okay. So let's say we intubate our beach ball. We set our beach ball lungs at a tidal volume of 400. Then we come back the next day and the vent is very angry at us. And now the peak pressure alarm is going off. The peak inspiratory pressure alarm is going off. And you're like, what happened? Well, what may have happened is that your nice beach ball lungs have unfortunately transformed overnight into ugly basketball lungs. Who knows why? Maybe you're developing worsening ARDS. Maybe somebody gave you 17 liters of fluid and you have pulmonary edema. Who knows? But now look what's happened. Your compliance has gotten worse. So now delivering that same tidal volume, of 400, rather than giving you a pressure of 20, it now gives you a pressure of 40. So what you realize you have to do is say, okay, pressure of 40 is bad. Generally, we wanna keep the pressure under 30. So in order to get a pressure under 30, I actually have to decrease the tidal volume to about 300. So in the volume control mode, your peak pressure alarm is going off because whatever tidal volume you set is now giving you pressures that are unacceptably high. Okay, what about it's the same day and we intubate another set of beach ball lungs, but this time we decide we just want to try out a pressure control mode instead. So we're going to try out a pressure control mode and we are going to set an inspiratory pressure of 20. And we find that with our nice inspiratory pressure of 20, it gives us a tidal volume of 400. Wonderful. But then you come back the next day and now your very annoying low tidal volume alarm is going off. What happened? Well, probably the exact same thing. Now we have our poorly compliant basketball lungs. And now what we find is that for that tidal volume of 400 and for that pressure of 20, look what's happened. Now, giving them a pressure of 20 no longer results in a tidal volume of 400. It results in a tidal volume of 300. So really the best way to think about this is that in a volume control mode, your peak inspiratory pressure is going to go off showing you that side of the coin. And what's going to happen is it's going to go off and then the vent will cut off your tidal volume that you're trying to deliver at whatever pressure you hit That's your maximum pressure. So if you tell the vent to give tidal volume of 400 and it starts to give the tidal volume of 400, but then once 200 cc's of that tidal volume are in, you hit a pressure of 30, you hit your max pressure, the vent will stop delivering the breath. You only get a tidal volume of 200 and you'll be looking at the vent and being like, okay, I said a volume of 400, but look, I'm only getting a volume of 200. This may be one of the reasons why. Now, the other side of the coin, if you're in a pressure control mode, what's going to happen is you set a pressure as the independent variable. Your tidal volume is now your dependent variable. And so your vent is going to start alarming when your tidal volume falls below whatever tidal volume threshold you've set. So unfortunately, it's even more complicated than that, because when we are talking about pressure alarms, We actually need to now distinguish the peak pressure from the plateau pressure. So here's what this means. When you are looking at the ventilator and when you're looking at the alarm and your peak pressure alarm is going off, the first thing you need to do is check a plateau pressure. So here's the deal. The peak pressure, that peak inspiratory pressure alarm will go off based on The highest pressure at any point in the system, all the way from the ET tube down through the trachea, down through the upper airways to the alveoli, the peak inspiratory alarm, the peak inspiratory pressure tells you what is the highest pressure at any point in this system. The plateau pressure, on the other hand, tells you what is the highest pressure the alveoli are exposed to. It's just telling you about the pressure in the alveoli. So which one of these matters for lung damage? Which one do you care about? Well, do you care if your ET tube and trachea are exposed to high pressures? Not really. That's not hurting them. It's your plateau pressure that you actually care about. It's the pressure that your alveoli are exposed to that you care about. And we like to keep those pressures less than 30. But we have a problem. Because even though it's the plateau pressure that you care about, the ventilator alarms based on the peak pressure. And here's the thing, just because your peak pressure is high doesn't necessarily mean that your plateau pressure is high, too. So how does this play out? All right. You're looking at your event, you're looking at your peak pressure and you find that it's high. All right. Your peak pressure is high, but we're trying to figure this out. So our peak pressure is high. What's the next thing we need to do? We need to check a plateau pressure. Now, the vent will not check it automatically for you. You actually have to say, let's check a plateau pressure vent. You do that by pressing the button that says inspiratory hold. You press that button and then the vent will do an inspiratory hold and pop up a plateau pressure. And that'll tell you what the plateau pressure is. So now we have our peak pressure and our plateau pressure and we can compare them. So what does it mean if let's say our peak pressure is high, our peak pressure is 45, But then we check a plateau pressure and it's normal, it's like 18. What's happening? What would cause us to have a high peak pressure with a normal plateau pressure? Well, it turns out your differential diagnosis for that is really three things. 1. Your endotracheal tube might be kinked, right? 2. You might have a mucus plug somewhere, anywhere, lots of little ones. Or 3. You could have bronchospasm. This is what often happens with asthmatics. You know when you intubate an asthmatic and then you start bagging them? You know how it's really hard and you're just like using a bunch of pressure to push the air in? Well, that's what the vent is feeling too when they are trying to ventilate an asthmatic. The vent is experiencing those high pressures just like you are when you're trying to bag the patient. But in an asthmatic, are the pressures in the alveoli high? No. No, they're not. They're having bronchospasm. So if you're in a situation with a high peak pressure and a normal plateau pressure, those three things are your major differential diagnosis. What about a situation when your peak pressure is high and you measure your plateau pressure and it's also high, your peak pressure is like 35, you measure your plateau pressure, it's also about 35. What is happening here? This means that you have decreased compliance. Now, decreased compliance could be from many things. And the catch here is you can't tell from this number whether you're having decreased compliance due to the lung turning into a basketball lung or having decreased compliance of the chest wall. So if you're having decreased lung compliance, that's often because you're developing pulmonary edema, you're developing lung inflammation, you're developing ARDS, but it could also be your lungs are basically okay, you have a chest wall compliance problem. Now, that may be because the patient weighs 700 pounds and the chest just wasn't meant to support 700 pounds. That could be because, you know, they have circumferential burns around the chest, right? So you don't always know why. And if you see a patient who has high plateau pressures with a totally normal chest x-ray, start thinking about chest wall things. But often this is a decreased compliance with the lungs issue. All right, so to sum up, the alarms we care about are our peak inspiratory pressure being high and our tidal volume alarm being low. These two alarms are two sides of the same coin depending on whether you're in a pressure controlled or volume control mode. And it really matters that you check a plateau pressure because your differential diagnosis totally changes depending whether your peak pressure is high and your plateau pressure is also high versus your peak pressure is high and your plateau pressure is normal. Now, we're going to briefly move on to approach to hypoxia. Um, so, in MINS 201, we are going to go into great detail um, about refractory hypoxia, but for the moment, we're just going to talk about a generalized approach to hypoxia. Um, now, as far as this goes, you know, I was taught a mnemonic, um, the DOPES mnemonic. I hate mnemonics. I think mnemonics uh, are for if you don't understand something at all and you're just trying to like rote memorization and that's not what this is about. So instead, I'm just gonna talk you through my approach to hypoxia in the ventilated patient. So I do four things. One, I look at the monitor. Two, I look at the vent. Three, I ask the nurse a couple of directed questions and then I try a couple things. So when I look at the monitor, what am I looking for? I wanna know if the O2 waveform is good. Um, Because if it's a bad waveform, then the problem may not be hypoxia, Um, especially because often what'll be happening is everybody's messing around with the O2 being like, there's no waveform. When what's really happening is the patient is profoundly hypotensive and that's why we can't get a waveform. Which is why the next thing you wanna do is, is the blood pressure okay? Uh, Because often it's not your O2 that's the problem, it's that the patient is profoundly hypotensive, maybe about to code. Three, is my entitled CO2 waveform good? If I have an entitled CO2 fabulous, if my entitled CO2 waveform is good, then my vent is not displaced, right? Good, my tube, correct place. All right, next thing, I look at the vent. Is my high pressure alarms going off? Is my high peak pressure alarm going off? If so, what's my plateau pressure, okay? Well, what about this? Am I having a normal pressure, but low volumes? And so it's not that my tidal volume is being limited by the pressures being too high. It's just, I'm getting low volumes. Sometimes you can see the situation when there's a leak in the circuit. Now it could be your cuff could be leaking. There could be a leak somewhere else in the circuit. Keep in mind, things like this can also happen if you have a chest tube in and you have a big pneumothorax or a lung lack that can give you, your pressures are fine or even low, but low volumes. Can I look for patient dyssynchrony? Um, you know, I don't think I fully appreciated um, when I was a resident how much dyssynchrony can contribute to hypoxia. And so often I'll start by sedating them, but I'll quickly go to paralyzing them again with rock just to get this issue sorted out because sometimes it can be hard to sort out what's going on if they're like freaking out and overbreathing all over the place. Breath stacking. Take a look at the waveform. Are they breath stacking? That's certainly not helping you. And finally, is the vent just otherwise angry at you? Is it beeping? Is it saying alarms you don't know about, like the oxygen's not connected correctly? If that's happening, just call the RT to make sure everything's connected up correctly. In the meantime, bag the patient because that's telling you something's wrong with the ventilator itself. Then I'll ask the nurse a couple of directed questions. One, was the patient disconnected and reconnected to the circuit? And the reason I care about this is that Um, Let's say I have a patient with really sick lungs and they're really hypoxic and I just spent all of this time optimizing and titrating my peep to optimally recruit all those collapsed alveoli. Their oxygenation is better. I pat myself on the back. Then somebody decides it's a good idea to, I don't know, take them to CT scan. What do they do? They disconnect them from the vent. They reconnect them to a transport vent. Then on the way back, they disconnect them again from the transport vent and reconnect them to the big vent. What have we just done to all that nice recruitment that we just achieved? Well, at the end of each breath, our peep is maintaining that recruitment. When we break the circuit and disconnect the vent, our pressures equalize. The pressure at end expiration equalizes with atmospheric pressure, and you know what you've just done? Lost all of that nice recruitment that you just did. And you have to start over again. Um, As such, if I have a patient who's super hypoxic, who I've had a really hard time recruiting, if I'm gonna break the circuit, I'll actually do the clamp switch thing where you have to have two people do it. You work with the RT. I basically take either like a chest tube clamp or just like a regular Kelly and I wrap it in tape. And then it's sort of a two person maneuver, but I'll usually do the clamping and I basically watch the event. And at the end of expiration, I just clamp the ET tube, have the RT real fast, switch out the circuit, and then I unclamp, because that way you maintain the pressure at end expiration, you maintain your recruitment. All right, did somebody just move the patient? Did they roll them, did they whatever? Did the patient just try and leap out of bed? Um, If that happened, I just go through and I check every point in my circuit to make sure that's not the problem is the patient agitated, same kind of idea, and did somebody just bronk them. This is not going to happen in the ED but may happen to you in the ICU. And the thing to understand about this is when you're bronking a patient, you're breaking the circuit. Patients often get really de-recruited when you bronk them, and often you need to recruit them up. There's no way to prevent that from happening during a bronch, and often you need to recruit them up again. And sometimes I'll do a recruitment maneuver after a bronch. Then I do a couple of things. One, I suction them with the inline suction. This is helpful for several reasons. One, if they have mucus plugs everywhere, that'll fix the problem. Two, it'll help me feel if there's some kind of obstruction to the tube. You know, often what's happening, um, especially right after you intubate a patient, maybe like an hour later, you'll get called. The event will be alarming. You'll try and pass a suction catheter and you'll find the patient is biting down on the tube because they're getting unparalyzed and you haven't sedated them adequately. If I really don't know what's going on, I'll try and ambu bag them. Um, One, just to make sure that this isn't a ventilator problem, a mechanical problem, but also it can give you a lot of information to ambu bag a patient. If you are going to do this, it's much more helpful to do it with a peep valve. Remember that video of the peep and the peep valve and they're already hypoxic, helpful with the peep valve. Um, If they're really hypoxic and I'm worried about breaking the circuit, uh, sometimes I'll do the clamp switch thing um, in order to ambu bag them back and forth. Depends how hypoxic they are. ABGs are actually quite helpful. And then I usually will also do a chest X-ray or more frequently, just a bedside ultrasound looking for pneumothorax, because it's just faster to get an ultrasound. So this is my thought approach to hypoxia. Um, In vents 201, we will talk about if you have done all of these things and the patient is still hypoxic, what are some strategies that you can use at that point? But for the moment, That ends the Vents 101 lecture series. Um, And stay tuned for when we come out with Vents 201.